Welcome to a special youth football edition of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast. So about 18 months after the first roundtable I did, uh, we've got a third. So we had a football one, uh, we had a rugby one, and now we've got a youth youth football one. So we've got Paul Bauer from Barnsley, we have Kev Paxton from Leicester, and Luke Jenkinson from Sheffield United. So very quick introduction uh, for all three of you, but Paul, do you just want to give us a little bit of an intro on yourself before we get going? Yeah, sure. So, uh, studied at Liverpool, John Moore's Uni, did a BSc there, then an MRes for two years after. Um, thought I'd walk into work, didn't. Spent a few years swanning around in Australia and, and Liverpool and all sorts of places. Ended up at Yorkshire Cricket Club as an intern. That was in 2011. Did a year there, then got a job at Barnsley in 2012. So, I've been there for now four years now. Cool. That's it. Kev? That's my bio. <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, I basically started out as a PT, uh, working at, and working in Derby. Uh, worked for about eight to ten years at Sheffield United's academy, uh, sort of fits and conditioning coach there. Went to Notts County Cricket Club to head up strength and conditioning there for about four seasons. And currently in my fourth year at Leicester City Academy as the head of sports science. Nice. And last but not least, Luke? Yeah, so where I started my career actually in banking is where I started. I left the, the industry to uh, pursue a career in strength and conditioning. So I've been at Sheffield for, ten, uh, for six years since 2010. Um, and as Kevin says, Kevin was there when I first started there as an intern, uh, progressed through the intern system and um, a, a classed as lead strength and conditioning coach at the club uh, now. Cool. So one thing I want to touch on, um, which maybe is a little bit of a, not a sore subject, but a, a talking point at least, among especially amongst you guys, which is the EPPP. So I just want to get a bit of a gauge on how it's affected not only your jobs and your roles, but your kind of um, the, the sport science academy structure as a whole. Maybe if it has, obviously it's affected the way coaches work, but um, how's it affected you guys? And feel free to just roll with it and uh, just get your experiences, really. Yeah, I'll jump in. So, sort of, I think there's been a lot of conversation in and around us can operate. Um, but I know there seems to be a lot of people that are against it. But I think as a, as a general framework and structures for people to, uh, if you just want to use it as a box to can exercise, then of course. Uh, not going to help anyone, but as a whole, if we're going to look to formalize specific parts of whether we start looking at maturation or individualized based programs, uh, the EPPP has, has been promoting for a category two status club. Um, then I certainly think that there's, there's foundations there of positivity. Um, but of course, there's, there's drawbacks that people have discussed, but I don't know what, what the other guys sort of think 
as a start from there, really. Do you want to go, Kev, or shall I? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm all for it, to be honest. And yeah. Being, having worked in the pre-EPPP era as well, I think it's a good thing. It, it's, it's providing, like Luke says, it's providing structure. It's providing accountability. Uh, it's putting pressure on senior management to make sure they're funding all aspects of player development. Um, I think, for me, the, the negativity normally comes from the practitioners that are reluctant to go the extra yard to do all aspects of player development uh, and just want to do it how they've always done it. So I think it's a good thing. I think it's going to raise the standards long-term of English football in, in the academy system. My, my major worry is that clubs don't fully really invest in the processes and that they, because it is such an audit-based structure, that some clubs that maybe haven't got the big budgets of, of some major academies will look to shortchange in an attempt to ensure they tick all the boxes. So that is a worry. But I think generally, like Luke says, as a principle, it's going to probably raise standards. So, uh, yeah, I, I agree. Instead of coaches, so it allows you to to work with them and see what they actually want because ultimately they're, they're the ones who are in charge of the development of the player because they're the ones who pick the players for games etc etc so you're allowed to work with them gain that insight work with the players in almost build the kind of a tool a mechanism to make the players better and get them to where they need to be which is in first team football um, whether that be you know a Premier League club going down the leagues and starting off in League 2 it's still a career or whether it be in a Championship League One club, like we've experienced, and lads going off to non-league conference football and doing really well, that kind of access to coaching um, is a big, big plus for me because they have to work with the sports scientists, they have to work with the physios, they have to work with the analysts because they're there because of the structure. So I think it promotes a lot of positive things in terms of the negative things. I think mean, there's a lot of paperwork. There is a lot of box sticking, and as Kev said, clubs maybe don't invest fully in what they should, i.e. staff and the things that the staff need to be able to do the job properly. But on the whole, for me, it's, it's definitely a positive. Mm-hmm. Just got a little, little few questions on the back of that, but I'm just going to, it's not because I don't like looking at your faces, it's just <laughs> I think the internet's going to uh, been a bit dodgy, so just cut your video, we'll carry on. No, no offence, PB. Yeah, well, I need a haircut, mate, so I'm fine with that. <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned uh, the the time issues, Paul. One the time thing, in terms of sorry, the, the paperwork and things. All oh, right, yeah, yeah. It was one thing that we struggled with at Doncaster was actually retaining the probably the oldest older school staff because mm-hmm. a lot couldn't turn on a computer. No disrespect to them, and mm-hmm. soon as they realised that they had to put time in away from the 6 p.m. till 8 p.m. in actually planning sessions and producing feedback for the lads. That was a, a bit of an issue. What What's the increase in time and commitment and responsibility from you for you guys uh, with the introduction of the HPP? Uh, for me, it's, it's comfortably a couple of hours a day, whether it be going through the kind of PMA and make sure you, you – you're filling up the PMA with all the performance clock details, whether it be doing your own monitoring spreadsheets, filling in testing things. There's always something to do. Plus, 
as a as a kind of head of department I have to do you know paperwork for that as well to make sure we pass the audit process so for me it's a couple of hours a day comfortably that's then before the evening the evening teams come in so the younger age groups and then obviously you're back out in the gym and on the grass um, and then you have to record that after so your day stretches so from being you know early in the morning it, it can get to half seven half eight at night before you actually finish for the day but I don't actually ever think you completely catch up with your work. I can't remember being going home and going, yet. Yeah, I've got nothing to do. There's always that kind of something to do. So that's how I'd say it. I certainly think, like, in terms of we were, well, pre-sort of pre-Triple P, we were filling in session evaluations and session diagrams and so on. And, again, I know I keep talking about, about formalising the process, but it's certainly a couple of hours a day, especially when you take into consideration that a lot of the football coaches may have one, two sessions a day where if you're at a club where there's sort of one of you primarily or two of you you're working with age groups or phases, then suddenly you've got 25 sessions to evaluate each week um, and like I, I ensure that we have we have notes and we start building a picture up by at least four players per session um, but I think in terms of my growth and knowledge of players it's helped me evaluate and create a deeper understanding of those individual players but as a, as a process it is time consuming but it's helped us build catalogues of drills and, and outcomes and how to manipulate these and what's linked into certain weeks of curriculums and oh we did this session in such a week it was actually really successful we found this and how we can start building up as, as I say curriculum and a portfolio of work um, so I think that's been really helpful for but it, as Paul says it, it is a time consuming process but it, it's a positive a process if you choose for it to be a positive process we choose it to be a, a process of just oh we did this and this and such and such got that out of it then it is almost a time wasting process but to use it positively you, you you can get quite a bit out of it I truly believe but as you say Paul that the we're still using sort of our own monitoring sheets, our own peak height velocity um, analysis tools, um, and we just uploading those uh, rather than using the, the other. Just because we have such a backlog of data, yeah, that's it. Uh, that we built upon that to start afresh, we would lose a lot of the depth and, uh, and the the validity that we've had that we found from having such a large database of data. Do you get buy-in from senior Especially management? Like, to get buy-in from senior management at the club to you know, fill in the PMA and make sure it's up to date. Yeah, it's certainly a uh, that we certainly have a culture of sort of that it's done um, in on the day or the following morning, um, and that we like we've got an intern that works with the uh, with the coaching staff that's on a, on a year placement, yeah. for example, and he does a lot of PMA with the coaches, and that the, there is a there's a buy-in, especially from sports science and medicine, we. We, we try and well we stay on top of it as much as we can and yeah, do it yeah. retrospectively within 24 hours but there's certainly a culture across the club I suppose we've got fairly young staff from that point of view as well that we're all pretty much computer literate and just crack on and get it done it's just a process that needs to be done and if we see it positively then ultimately we get more information about our players more information about the kids and they're the ones that benefit it because it's them it's, it's about them ultimately what about yeah. you, what are you Kev, in a in a academy that's maybe got more members of staff and a bit a bit a bit bigger? 
Similar feeling. I think, yeah, I mean, we we are we are quite lucky in that the academy is well supported in terms of staffing and and Emirates structures. But I mean, I, I think the message has always been simplistic to to the department, and this is right across the whole club as well. That we don't collect data for the sake of collecting data. So we'll literally stick our hat on one or two key variables of data collection. Uh, and we'll do that really, really well to make sure that we get usable information, we benchmark it, we classify it, we grade it, whatever you want to call it. We put it in simple traffic light terms and we feed it back because it's all about closing that feedback loop. There's, there's no point in you three days after the training session still chipping away at, at data admin. It, the, the sessions have gone and it's lost. It's pointless. So I think the big drive for me is ahead the department has always been to we want to simplify our processes as much as possible we want to autonomize it as well so if um, our, our data that we generate has literally got to be um, sorry that's Mrs. phone the data that we generate <laughs> it's, it's got to be you know once once we once we turn it out and we punch it in it's then got all our spreadsheets have got to be automated so we'll we'll look at every single way to try try and maybe spend a bit of time early on in the season automating all the spreadsheets. But like you punch the raw data in, then bang, it self-populates everywhere, and then your imports are already going. It just cuts down the the time over the year. You know, if you put a bit of work in early doors, and then the rest of the season is a lot smoother, and you can actually impact on the data you've got. So I mean that's. My my message, like I say, sorry I'm rambling a bit here, but message for any sort of young practitioners that are coming out of uni, hey, you could you can collect data on absolutely anything and everything, but you've really got to decide what you want to look at and how you're going to impact on it, and and if you can't make that decision, then then you're just going to make a lot of work for yourself in the future. So, and like one one line that we use with the interns is in, in for those young coaches is. Only measure what you're going to manage. And if you're not prepared to manage and close that loop, as you say, then there's no point in measuring it for the sake of just having the data. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Sorry, Rob, I'm going to be it's like the Paul Bell performance podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I um, wish it was. <laughs> Kev, so were you there when they went from Cat 2 to Cat 1, Leicester? Yes, yeah, yeah. So uh, when what's I the came in and... between the two? Literally, when we start, when I first walked through the door, I was talking about it today. There was two members of staff. There was a sports scientist and a physio. Yeah. But for the under 18s, and there was just and that was it. There was no. We literally right from square one. So we, you know, we we didn't have the budgets initially. We had to go down the use of um, work experience students doing the dissertations on the players, and then we got to. Uh, MRES students part funded for like 10 hours a week and then we built it up and then we sort of generated junior staff, lead staff structures and eventually now we've got fully funded MRES schemes so to tackle different performance questions or phases of support. I mean that's that, that would be my biggest thing. I think I had a discussion with the management last year to say be much more important to spend money on staff and extra pairs of hands to impact on the players' program than buy a load of fancy new equipment. Yeah, 
Because ultimately, that's what it comes down to. You've got to be able to coach these players. And if you've got a squad of 16 players in the gym, for example, and you've got to do readiness assessments, and then you've got to do, you know, competency checks, and then you've got to do, you know, individual loading strategy, but at the same time ensure the technical, you know, uh, uh, the staff, maybe three or four members of staff per gym session for all age groups in the gym. There'll be one lead, maybe one junior staff, of interns but they're all in there and so we're trying to cover rather than saying right okay we want to go and invest in some fancy racks or some you know expensive force platforms and and do all the sort of stuff that you see in high level universities it's just we want to do good solid training and do it really really well make sure that, that the environment for the kids is safe and that they're actually learning and then more importantly they're enjoying what they've done Cool. Just want to move on to I'm gonna I'm gonna aim this at Luke because it's it's something that we've we've chatted about on the on the podcast before and that is um, kind of multi sports and and game the games curriculum that we discussed. I mean it was probably I don't know uh, not far from a year ago that we that we chatted about it. Just I just wanted to kind of again touch on it and hopefully get the the views of the two guys of, and how they implement a similar thing do you just want to give us a bit of a um a detail on what i mean by that if if people haven't listened to the, the episode that me and you did um just yeah. about the, the multi-sports and the kind of things you're doing so uh, we'll link it back to p as well so in terms of p there's there's a requirement to show that you're that you have a multi-sport uh, program, well, curriculum as part of your um, as part of your academy. Um, so, what what we came up with the idea is that we've looked at the basic research, uh, the, the the conflict between early and late specialisation, and those development years and those windows of opportunity, especially sort of pre-peak height velocity and puberty. Um, and we sort of said that as a cat two club, if we've got players in training. Um, three, four weekdays, um, and as playing a game on a Saturday and playing a game on a Sunday, then that gives us possibly two other evenings a week at the most for them to be engaging in other sports. Um, therefore, we'd, if they've got one night a week, two nights a week, we'd be more interested in them actually resting and recovering being as, as the main aim of those evenings. So we felt that if we can't um, offer our young athletes this, this rounded experience, then we needed to bring this rounded experience in-house. Um, so in terms of the way we coach as a, as a strength and conditioning or an athletic development um, department is that we we look to coach as high up the sort of coaching ladder as possible, as close to the real game as we can. Uh, for the majority of the time, um, in real sort of competitive, directional, chaotic environments, um, um, and from there, what we will do is we will, we will coach them in there rather than looking backwards uh, and going, we're going to build from, from the ground upwards. We will ensure that we've got a lot of disguise learning. So we will still work on plyometrics, but we might be doing skipping, for example, or we might be working on squat patterning, whereas we might actually look at just some bo- some level of box jumps or assault course work. Um, so 
yeah, that's the approach that we take uh, with our foundation phase. We have specific gymnastics-based evenings and game-based evenings. Um, we will flood sort of our half terms with off-site stuff or, or sort of multi-sport days, whether we've got links with the English Institute of Sport or local private schools, for example, where we will take the kids in and we'll come, we will expose them to a range of opportunities. And where my sort of thinking goes is that when, when we expose these children to these, all these different environments is that, not only do the are probably the best movers that we see on a pitch, those that are rhythmical, those that are smooth, those that are balanced, those that are good on the eye, they form exactly the same in these other environments. Therefore, my frame of mind is that if we can coach young athletes in these other environments to perform athletically, then it will transfer back the other way. But the counter-argument is, why don't you just teach them to play football? But if you think that if you've come into an academy system, so I work with pre-academy at six years old, you might be in the academy 10 years before you've even, well, become full-time as a scholar. Therefore, 10 years, five days a week with inside those same four walls can become very tedious in terms of just motivation and, and your level of engagement. Therefore, we do as much work as we can. We've done some work with Great British Climbing that I work for, for example. We've done work with parkour and just building these relationships in and around the city um, to go and coach and expose these young athletes to as many environments as possible and coach them in those environments, importantly. So that's a, that's my main principle and idea. But, um, no, yes, that's cool. That's that's cool. And just one thing I've written down here, and it kind of comes back to the each will pay. And I'll I'll pull the other guys in at the same time with this. Obviously, with each will pay, you're gonna have to be justifying evidence in all this this kind of thing that you're doing. But to to see the um, the benefits of that type of that type of events and the the rock climbing and things like that, I'm guessing is kind of difficult. So how are you going about that yeah. from an evidence in each P uh, kind of writing down situation? So in terms of like what we're in terms of our, our rationale and, and sort of the actual scientific, the academic background, um, I know we've, there's a piece of research that I know Kelvin Giles um, has, was part of over in Australia um, and that looked at the, the development pathway in Australia, uh, America and Britain and looking at how participation levels have varied over the years and what current physical literacy tests are showing um, that current performance is, is at and with basically the study that said that over the three nations that we've all dropped off over over the last sort of 50 years, um, but as, as England and Britain that we still fall behind the the Americans and the Australians uh, but also all the work such from Rodri Lloyd and the examples of his uh, sort of long-term athletic development models uh, and those those like those those key windows of opportunity that he speaks around in terms of coaching and the, and the very general argument of early versus late specialization um, but we're now just trying to get to a point where this has to become quantifiable is it actually working? Um, I think what we initially believed is that there was quite a, from that traditional closed loop coaching is that there wasn't perhaps the bridge and the transfer from practice to performance. But now the challenge is to make this quantifiable. But of course, it's going to be a long term thing um, and we'll only start getting 
the actual raw data over the years to come. Uh, but from my point of view, I, I see players that are fully engaged in sessions, that are happy, that are motivated, that want to create that create new shapes and challenges for themselves. Um, so from my point of view, 99% of them, are, are, if they aren't going to make the first team, the numbers will say that pretty much no matter what club that you're at. So can we make it a, a, the most memorable and enjoyable uh, process as possible whilst they're being exposed to <coughs> as great an increase in physical literacy rates as possible and long-term engagement in sport post-game? Only two guys want to uh, yeah. pick on that? Yeah, so the work we do at Barnes is come, nothing like Luke's work in terms of its the the amount of stuff they do. He, he kind of inspired myself and and Luke Luke Dobson who works with me and Nathan who's in the first team over a couple of like seminars and sessions viewing it that we really need to change our foundation program. So we've moved towards this multi sports like basically absolute carnage chaos kind of scenario with the players where we just let them go wild. Basically, they do gymnastics, they do uh, tag tag rugby, invasion games, anything. And we've kind of built over the last year a kind of curriculum where they're working, like they're revisiting certain games, certain movement patterns over the period of a year. But it's all based on what the football is for that day, if that makes sense. So we work to a football syllabus. So if, it, for example, the week is on counter-attacking, all of our multi-sports games will be around counter-attacking. So it almost you're priming learning at the same time, but you're giving the kids you know, a chance to play other sports, have fun, but also learn at the same time. So when they do play football later on in the session, they might have actually pick up something from the game of rugby, if that makes sense. So, so go on, sorry, mate. Go on. No, go on, mate, you go. No, I was going to say, go. what what was the um, what was the feeling amongst the lads with the change of direction? Was it was it quite obvious that they liked well, it, it was, more, it was disliked shit, it? shit beforehand. <laughs> it was shit beforehand, if I'm being honest. It was... It's, it was nothing. We didn't give the provision to the players. We didn't have the staff to to do it, and we kind of left them to their own devices. And that that's you know my fault really. But we kind of thought, no, we're going to make a real concerted effort to to make this better. The three of us really, and we kind of did our studies, did our reading, went and visited, went and spoke to people, listened to seminars, and went right. This is the way we're going to go with it. And the result is that players absolutely well. They look like they're loving it by the noise they make. Um, and yeah, it's enjoyable. Are we getting the results we need? I don't know. Like Luke said, is it quantifiable? I'm not sure. But are they enjoying themselves? Yes. Are we exposing them to a range of different sports? Yes. Are we exposing them to different movement patterns that they will later do as as they become primed athletes? Yes. So for me, it's, it's a no-brainer. So cheers, Luke. And I think well, you're more than welcome. <laughs> and I know we've had loads of conversations about it, but it's yeah. one of the biggest things is it's just a philosophy of of play for children that that, that yeah. there's sort of adventure, risk that there's imagination that it comes from them that there's a sense of sort of belonging and this is just sort of a philosophy for coaching children that they that they're really inspired to go away and and, and come up with work within your boundaries but that the, it comes from within them and that that, that it's child-led and that, that I'm coaching them in their environment rather than them just turning up to my session and doing what I tell them to do. Um, and I think it just – movements become more maximal. They, they, you stick someone in a 1v1 where someone's chasing someone or you've got to get away, you're going to run really quick and I'm going to coach you how to do that. 
a poster, can we run from cone A to cone B as fast as we can? And we're going to look at X, Y, and Z. Or if I'm, if we're working on some sort of core lumbar pelvic stability, then let's work on some sort of wrestling and foot patterning work. And how can we control our center of mass opposed to standing on one leg and waving my arm around? Um, but that's just my ideas. That's um, yeah. Can I just jump in there, guys? Go for it. I yeah. mean, I mean, I, I just I think there's a bit of a misconception with multi-sport and that it has to be separate from the coaching program. From, I mean, for me, that it, all types of drills that you do, it's all movement, whether it's multi-sport or a phase of play or 4v4 or some passing drill or some, it's, it's essentially movement. So what I think what you've got to do is you've got to kind of categorize a continuum. So you've got your football-based big movement, you know, football-specific per se should we say drills on a continuum all the way down to your S&C exercises in the gym your control change of direction drills then you've got your individual multi-sport auto-regulation combat drills then you've got your small number drills of multi-sport it might be 2v2s 3v2s then you've got your sort of more team based you know as a, as a flow of movement skills and and the misconception i think sometimes is that for me that coaches are go oh you've got to do some more sport in the physical curriculum it's like oh hang on a minute you know the the physical curriculum is just an aspect of multi-sport weightlifting and strength training is, is multi-sport it's a sport in itself and sometimes it's a contrast from what you guys do on the field we don't need to be just doing more and more types of similar style football and movement drills with by doing loads and loads of team games in our physical sessions all the time because all all we're going to do is then overload on the same type of movement patterns so and then it doesn't I, you lose the principle of what you're aiming to do yeah I, I just think sometimes I think more I think the coaches should be more responsible for multi-sport at the end of the day you, you can do a possession drill with throwing games and tag games and it can still be a possession drill but without the football but there's still the possession style movements you know you can do rondos by playing tag or stuck in the mud, but without the ball, it's still, they're doing the same type of movements, they're just not kicking the football. So, you know, I think ultimately that's, the coaches should be embracing more of these type of multi-sport movements in their coaching sessions, and we should be supplementing that with maybe derivatives of multi-sport as well, such as like net racket games, like say gymnastics stuff, this is all great stuff to supplement those multi-sport movements, but I don't think it should purely rest on the shoulders of the SNC to deliver the multi-sport because ultimately delivering SNC training is multi-sport and I had this argument with the auditors that weightlifting is an Olympic sport so why is that not considered a multi-sport yeah. when you're teaching you know what it just because it doesn't look like a game of handball or basketball doesn't mean it's not multi-sport it's in, actually the contrast from the football may be a good thing as well um as, as, you know, I'm I'm basically saying you've got to do a bit of everything, Absolutely. and I think that's where Rodri Lloyd comes from with his areas of prioritisation. That you you do a bit of everything all the time. You just might do more of some things with certain age groups. So, so is that up to up to us as coaches to be putting the onus on the on the technical coaches? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah I think okay. we should put pressure on them. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're looking, to, they've got individual learning plans to be. I know work their defending footwork then give them bits of parts of the sessions to work on 
multi-sport movements that involve defending footwork. You know, it doesn't have to just be a, a football drill to work on that. Like like Paul was saying, you know, you, you can get those physical gains from doing the multi-sport drills. But I think there's a danger in that if we we shy away too much of the traditional S&C stuff, like some of the, the fizzy tech stuff that Luke's doing at uh, Sheffield United is, you know, stand on one leg, playing, catching balls. That's great balance work. It serves as a foundation to then go into some organised drills and serves as a foundation to then go into some random auto-regulation com- competitive drills, which serves as a, you know, a good base to then go into a 4v2 defending drill. Yeah, and there should be that continuum of exercise uh, for me. Yeah, and it's, 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 as you say, about knowing when to be in the right place at the right time. And and I think importantly, who individuals within those groups being at the right place at the right time and being able to expose them to to the level that they're at um, as well. So, um, yeah, through, through, well, we do, we do sort of challenge cards and homework uh, and so on to do that. But yeah, it's it's one thing that I spoke about uh, on the Advanced Youth Award that we'd sort of, I think a few people have got this idea that we that Sheffield United or what we were currently doing as part of the movement skills program is just purely games, 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 games. But it's that as as Kev says that it's that importance of knowing where each individual's at and where to fall on that sort of continuum spectrum of, of practice um, that that's best deemed for each of those individuals that you're working with. So where so where does the traditional gym based strength training fit in on this continuum and where does it fit into your curriculum in the curriculum itself you've got to start teaching the basics of of movement technique as soon as they start coming into the ydp phase but you just don't you just don't do as much of it as what you might do at the upper ydp phase you know once they've come through peak height velocity and starting to go and the hormones are kicking in, they're starting to go into adolescence. And, and the, the, again, I'm talking on a couple of presentations on this recently. There is no rush. There's absolutely no rush with youth development in terms of physical development. I think sometimes we're too keen to do the what we consider elite-level training exercises, such as the Olympic <laughs> weightlifting, too early because we think that's what's elite training. So you can do elite, you can do Olympic lifting derivatives without going anywhere near a barbell, whether it's jump training or squat patterns or kettlebell swings or med ball exercises, you know, and then you can progress them into fun drills. You know, so I've seen a few things from American high school coaches that were great. They didn't really, I don't think they realized what they were doing, but it was like med ball into footwork, med ball into paired little games and stuff with, with, but they were doing loads and loads of footwork then some gym exercises then some footwork then some gym exercises you know that's the sort of stuff at that YDP phase that can give you a real good squat patterning foundation triple extension foundation prior to then learning the strength te- training techniques prior to then starting to load and and really if they're bored of Olympic weightlifting by the time they're 18 then you've done them a disservice because that's not that's when they should be peaking. That's when they should be absolutely nailing it, um, and not. I think it's too late to start learning it then. But you know they should they should be sort of trying to peak up towards really the desire to try and improve on those exercises at those PDP phases. 
because that's what gives them the focus and the the concentration to try and do the hard yards to become a pro. And in terms of just to continue on from that, completely agree with Kev from that perspective. It's just that how your volumes and your weightings of, of what you're currently doing is happening at your level of individual maturation in terms of those those S and C patternings of squat, hip hinge, lunge, push, pull, brace, rotate. We do all of this stuff down in the F, well foundation phase as well. So whether that's just a trunk stability press up from an FMS that's just set out as a as a game of staying in, can you keep your body in a tight bridge position? These sort of disguised disguised movements are, are in there all the way from six seven years old. And I think sometimes we it's why I work with the pre-academy because if we look at those early windows of opportunity some of those greatest greatest years are around five and six so if we can if we can continue to work on hip separation and, and the ability to go from full triple flexion to rapid triple extension that that, that they should be in there throughout uh, but perhaps how we the, the rates of loading and the rates of movement change depending on where someone is in terms of their maturation process. But um, of course, and I think that's one of the great great things that Kev, that I'll take out of that in particular is that Olympic weightlifting doesn't have to be with a barbell. Those derivatives and, and creating those the, those shapes and movements don't have to be with a 20 kilo Alico barbell. Um, but there's other ways of of program that that's appropriate for your age group and appropriate for the the individual's maturation level. There's only less yeah, that I, can afford the Alico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, Sorry, Paul. Yeah. What are you going to say? No, I was just going to agree with both of them. Really, just kind of summarise our kind of like thoughts, and it would just basically be fun in the foundation phase, fun and movement. Then you're looking at technique in the kind of lower new phases, 12s, 13s, maybe 40s, 14s, then you're loading and then you're performing. You basically follow that kind of pattern. Um, once you start loading kind of in the under 16 to under 18 phase, then you're really looking at performance as well and how it can aid their performance, making them quicker, agility, yada, yada, yada. We all, we all know not reinventing the wheel. Um, but, yeah, just as a summary, really, I agree with, with both the guys that hit the nail on the head. It's probably the best way to put it. Well, I think that has to be so, so individualized in terms of each individual's maturation that we have players that are two, sort of 2.2 years post-peak height velocity at 13 and a half. Therefore, even though they're an under 13 age group, it wouldn't be fair for us to be giving them the same group as someone that's two years pre-peak height velocity at that age. Um, so I think that individualization of those programs and knowing where those people fall on what line of the, the continuum is also vastly important that we don't do anyone a disservice by the way well in fact Johnny you're actually an under 13 so you're going to do the under 13s program when in fact that Johnny's well Johnny could actually be an under 15 um, from a from a physical perspective yeah I, I, I think you're right there Luke. I think that's where the, the, the skill of the practitioner comes in and that if you're doing an exercise Say for example, like a, just a, a step up onto yeah. a box. You know there is numerous different ways in which you can make a step up harder in terms of control. Whether it's arms above the head, knee lift in a higher position, ankle lift, uh, touch down. For example, turning to single leg squat or contralateral touch down 
lateral touchdown. You can turn a step up into a variety of different exercises, but they can all do a step up, so they can all follow that same theme of a program. But you can go, right, no, this guy's got it. He can get it. Get get that med ball above your head. That guy's not got it. Drop it down. You're just doing body weight. You keep your foot flat on the step. You got you. This guy's maybe not got the trunk stability, but he's got the lower body control. Good. Lift your heel when you come up onto the step. You know, little coaching cues like that. Where I think you can, without changing the exercise and changing the loading strategy too much, simple little progressions, regressions to to ensure that they get technical mastery of the exercise. That's it, Kev. I think it is just literally progress and regress around your set movement pattern for that particular lift or or set or whatever it is you're working on. You've always got to have that in your locker anyway because the players might be knackered, for example, and they might not be able to do what you've actually set them to do, so you've got to regress it. Or they might be ahead of the group in terms of the size, as Luke mentioned, and then you've got to progress it, and they progress quickly because they're good learners. And I think we've all got it in. We, we all understand it's yeah, like you said, the the ability to actually to to see it, do it, perform it, and and keep the keep the athletes safe. I think that's the most important thing. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Just going to take a very quick break before we get into the second half of the podcast with Luke, Paul, and Kev. So the second part of the podcast uh, is going to start with a question to, to Kev initially with how we integrate technology into his, uh, into his department. So it's a really interesting little bit of a chat and how the, the, all the three clubs who have got different financial constraints uh, deal with technology and, and GPS and things like that. So it kind of builds on the first part of the uh, podcast, which is nice. So just want to say a big thank you to Train With Push, who are sponsoring the podcast today. Um, I have sorted out a free delivery discount code for anyone that wants to get a push band and live in the UK. So if you go to proformance.pro and you put in Pacey Perform into the voucher code box, you'll get free delivery uh, to anywhere in the UK. So again, um, Val Performance are sponsoring the episode today. So a massive thanks to them guys, uh, the guys behind the Nordboard. So if you are interested in getting to know anything more about the, the Nordboard itself, get over to valdperformance.com. That's V-A-L-D performance.com. So I hope you enjoy the second part of the podcast with the three guys. I uh, would love to know any thoughts you had uh, after the episode. Um, and I will uh, speak to you soon. Enjoy. So I just want to move on a little bit to uh, probably kind of contradicting a little bit from what we were talking about earlier with regards to the integrating. It wouldn't be a podcast without talking about technology because people, me included, love it. So it was just, you know, know, a day doesn't go by when you see stuff about pressure mapping and GPS and, you know, whatever the latest velocity-based training, whatever it may be, but... I just wanted to get a, a gauge of how technology has been implemented, if it has, into the academies that, that you work in. And I'll, I'll start with Kev. Um, I'm probably going to aim that at you first off. Yeah. Uh, again, like I say, I think we're, to be fair to the owners, they, they, they really do fund the academy very well uh, in terms of technology. But we've, we stick our, our, our colours to one mass, and that's sort of GP. GPS on-field tracking, so we try and get every player from 21 with a GPS unit 
uh, goalkeeper specific units as well. And then it's then the only other place for technology for me really is the strength diagnostics. So we're looking at you know force platforms. Everything else then is subjective, coached based opinion of technique, competency. Um, so yeah, I mean that's about it. Really, I think uh, one of the good things that's come out from the the national benchmark testing is the the opta jumps. And I think uh, you know with academies having those opta jumps available to do RSIs uh, and vertical jump testing uh, is is a good thing. If you haven't got that, you know there's there's plenty of simple. Uh, reliable tests you can just do a, a jump test for regular neuromuscular fatigue monitoring with a jump test but yeah the the, the main two points for me are that, that we want to if we're going to invest in technology we want the best possible assessment of what they're doing on the field and we want the best possible objective assessment of are they actually getting stronger and then everything else in between is pretty much just coach led observations any of the two guys obviously Kev, you're in a slightly different situation to the other two, so getting the other two is... Uh... Do you want to go, Luke, or shall I? Yeah, yeah, I've not really got much to add, but into, especially in line with EPPP, we uh, traditionally, when I first started at the club, and like when Kev was there, we, we just used an Activio heart rate uh, monitoring system uh, for quantifying sort of training loads with our uh, our scholars, our under-17s and upwards, um, whereas now it's, it's become that we're using GPS uh, with our full-time players. Um, I'd say that's the only real key level that we're looking at in terms of um, a sort of play monitoring. Uh, everything else is very much your traditional wellness questionnaires, RPE scales, uh, nothing groundbreaking yet, but gives us if you're prepared to analyze it and use it efficiently, gives us a hell of a lot of information from it and correlating our GPS data to, to player well-being. Um, but yeah, and then just monitoring loads in gyms, uh, in the gym and not only external load, but looking at those internal loads. And if we are using exercises of low uh, external load, but high stress potentially, whether it's a single leg skater squat, for example, that, that there's a recognition of that loading as well. I mean, for me personally, we've we've flirted with the use of GPS through various systems. Um, that's really as far as it goes. We count a movement jump on a morning as part of our wellness, um, like get just an objective measure of power. Um, is it totally accurate? Not sure. Does it give you an indication of where the player is at? Yes, I think it does. It also tells you in terms of development if the player is actually getting stronger as the year goes on. So you, you generally see an increase in their jump over the period of a year or two-year period of a scholarship. So we will use it for that. But in terms of GPS, we've used it a bit. We don't have it at the club with the academy. The first team use it. But for me, when we did use it, it wasn't useful enough because of the low members of staff. We actually couldn't get down, sit down and and crunch out the data and look and see if there's any patterns. We literally were just putting the GPS on the players and putting it in charge, downloading it, and then putting it back on the players again the next day. So I think it's important to add into there as well, just about that, and it links together quite a bit of what we've just discussed, Paul, is that we we only use GPS for uh, last season, but in terms of our programming for our full-time players, of what we believed extensive sessions look like, what intensive sessions look like. The the 
sort of pat on the back for us was that the GPS sort of just quantified and told us what we believed was happening from the research, if that makes sense. Um, Of course, it's now given us more depth and more in-depth numbers to analyse and work from. But I I don't think that it should be one of those where uh, perhaps people or other clubs are going, oh, well, we don't have access to GPS, then we can't do that sort of thing. The GPS just quantified what we believed we were doing and actually gave a bit as a bit of a pat on the back and went those high intensity running days we were actually getting four hundred meters more of high intensity running compared to another day, for example. Or yeah. this drill gave us these outcomes that we can now create a portfolio of drills and outcomes from. Um, but yeah, sorry to jump in. No, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if you're playing on a full size pitch you're gonna have yeah. more chance to sprint. Whereas if you're playing on a 20 by 20, I mean, they've got to be pretty quick to get to full speed. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it just, it confirmed, it confirmed what we kind of already knew, but it gave it gave the players something different. Obviously, they were being monitored, so straight away that had a different effect, but it, it's something we'd like, I think, in the future, but until we've got, until we've got our staffing levels correct and we've got the kind of everything else boxed off, the basics boxed off, that for me, it's, it's a pointless exercise at this current time. But I would like to use it and get, and you know, and get familiar with it. I think you're bang on there, Luke. Then, in, in terms of like, there's there's several aim, there's several things you can get from using GPS. One is a drill classification. So, you know, you can you can pin pigeonhole drills to extensive drills. You can pigeonhole drills to high volume, lower speed drills. You can pigeon drills to intensive, quick change direction. Uh, so you can you can set a drill breakdown from that. If you've got a coach with 20 to 30 years experience, then he'll probably have already done that anyway. Yeah. Uh, it's just the GPS proves that. Yeah. So it is good to have that. And if you're going to take it a little bit step further, you know, sometimes you can say, right, this is the effect of having 8v4 as opposed to having 5v3, you know, and it might be that you go for some coach. So I go, oh, I want to go, I'll go, I've got 16 players, I'll go 4v4. With eight on the outside, that's totally different to having, you know, four v four with four on the outside and a couple of talk, you know, this sort of stuff. So the different drills will have different effects, and the GPS will prove that. I think that the main advantage of having the GPS, and if you've got the finance to do it, is that it's individualization of training, so that there's no hiding place in terms of their weekly loads of people that haven't hit their sprint distances, haven't hit their high-speed running thresholds, uh, which is a major risk factor in terms of hamstring injury prevention. So, you know, you want to know going into the week, have they done enough? Uh, and in the sessions, have they been putting in same as other players? So that that's the major benefit of having the GPS. But the, the downside of that is obviously every player has to have a unit every session uh, which costs, you know, quite a considerable amounts of money. Which leads us nicely onto uh, Paul. You do kind of discussing your situation at, at Barnsley with with so many people, so many more people out there, probably in your position, who were kind of one man bands or one man intern or you know a situation like that. So I just yeah. want to talk to us a little bit about how you manage your uh, kind of lack of staff more than anything, more than managing your staff, manage your lack of staff and manage your time. Um, yeah. Yeah, just want to just touch on that for us. 
uh, I'm not going to, when you wrote this kind of question down, I kind of thought about how I was going to answer it. I think re really the the main thing is not a technical at all, but actually get your recruitment right so you've got the best staff in possible. So, yeah, we've got two or three members of staff, but it's making sure that those two or three members of staff are uh, as good as possible and we'll get the most out of them, not in terms of the time at the club, but quality and their their ability to to do the basics and nail the basics because if that's what everyone's doing it doesn't matter how much technology how much money you've got everyone's still going back to the basics we're not reinventing the wheel i don't think anyone is um they're just doing the basics just some have got basics with technology some have got basics with money some have got basics with six or seven members of staff so for me that's the big thing if you if you don't have a budget as such get your basics right and as kev said earlier invest in staff if you do get money invest in staff rather than gps so if, if i came across 30 grand for example i would not be going for gps i'd be trying to get as many staff for that as possible whether it be three students on masters or whatever it might be that's where i'd go with my money because staff are way more important because they're the ones who work with the players the gps doesn't turn itself on and off and and download and do all that it needs staff to do it so that's probably the biggest thing for me when you've not got you know a budget or you've not got loads of things is get back to the basics do them right but make sure that there's good people doing it for you as well if that what makes are the key things that you look for paul when you, so when you talk about someone that's really good what are the i have a criteria in my head and i look for what, what would be yours so We've worked quite hard as a, as a department, work with an operate, our operations manager on the way we recruit people. And we kind of go through like a profiling process. So we have quite a, a strict application process, which obviously filters out those that can't read. So they're gone. They're out of it. I'm out of the job. Yeah, that's it. I'll see you later. Um, so that's, no CV you know, spelling mistakes. Uh, just just little things. So like, you know, I'm not going to tell you the, what we actually do because it'll give it away, but there's just yeah. little red herrings in there. And then, you know, say we've got 50 applicants, 20 of them are gone because they can't even read. Yep. And then it's then it's working to criteria. That do you say or not yeah. to Paul Bauer? Yeah, exactly. Um, but then it's working to criteria of essential and desirable. And obviously some don't have that. And then it's getting it down and we whittle it down to the people. And then the things I look for most is not technical things. It's actually the person. Yeah. And would I go for a pint with them is the first one. Um, would they go for a pint with me is probably a more telling question. <laughs> um, but also like their ability just to speak in an interview. So group tasks or whatever, their ability to, to manage a group of people and actually get on with the players yeah. because we're always going back to the players. If they can't manage the players and get on with them, they're not going to respect them. They're not going to get the information. They're not going to get the results needed. So for me, it's it's having that that personality, that drive, that hard work, and that ability to be you know meticulous and having attention to detail. Because if you haven't got that, you've not got to an interview. Absolutely, and not to take away from that that academic un that underpins everything that we do and that research driven base, but. You can have all the academic knowledge in the world, but we're coaches, and and if you can't engage with with your target audience, you can have all the the world, all the knowledge in the world, and it'd be absolutely pointless. So, yeah. one thing that we've changed with through like intern programs is maybe you maybe you are only a first or a second year um, at college, uh, at university, but the the guys that have worked, especially with me and the younger guys. 
the guys that have been more successful are the ones that have just got experienced coaching kids. So whether that's that they've done after school clubs or they've been at King's camps or yeah. that ability to coach large groups and engage children. Um, but also would they go for a pint with me? Yeah. Do you, do you all do practical parts of the interview? Yeah, that's so yeah, so go through the process to have like a, an interview which would be a, a, te- a set task, whether it's a performance analyst or a strength and conditioning coach or whatever, they'll have a set task given by us. And then yeah, the, then the next part, the last part is a is a practical interview, depending on what the job role is. Do your guys do uh practicals as well, Kev? Uh, Luke? Uh, we yeah, not- I mean sorry, go on then Luke. No, yeah. no, I'm just saying. We have done practicals before. Uh, we've not done practicals before. Um, I think it's been more around their, their engagement. It depends what level they're at, of mm-hmm. course. If it was for, if we're talking part-time interns, then we've not done practicals. But when we've sort of looked at lead interns and so on, that practicals have been, or, or a part-time staff, they have been, um, practicals involved. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Kev. Yeah, I was going to say previously when I've ever done some like recruiting for intern programs, uh, I used to, I certainly did back in the day, used to do sort of practical workshops for the afternoon or the week. Uh, I can remember when we did started back at Sheffield Hallam and there was like, it was seven to eight, Monday to Friday in the morning in the sports hall, large groups of it. And, and you basically, you, you just waited to see who was still coming at, seven o'clock in the morning on the Friday to do workshops and because there was a natural fallout and then and what you also looked I was really keen to see who rocked up on that Thursday morning at seven o'clock the day after you know Wednesday night out uh, student night sort of thing so because those ones those ones that were missing on the Thursday were straight lines for as well because yeah. uh, uh, you know that ultimately that's what it's about it's we're all in a mainstream education. We all go through mainstream education and uh, and we're running MRS programs now to recruit from universities in terms of formalized program. But our internship scheme at the moment is that's based around legalities of recruiting someone who's in formal education, someone who's involved on a supervised experience pathway through bases. You know, we're going through these routes to, to formalize our internships to make sure that they get some actual formal learning. But, what I'm really looking for is the people that want to come to the internship to improve as a practitioner. And with that in mind, you know, I was asked um, by one of the ex-interns the other day, like, you know, what do you look for on a CV? And I said, the first thing I look for is the number of years practical experience, whether it's voluntary or part-time or summer camp experience. That's what I look for because, you know, master's degrees are 10 a penny nowadays um you want to see who is willing to go out and do the the hard yards to be be a coach i mean and and i say again the final thing i say um i always say on the induction process for the interns we've got a really low ego environment at our in our office but i will always give them a cv slide for myself on the induction day to say this is how I got to where I am, not to sort of boast and try and demean them and say, right, you know, I've got 15 more years experience on you. It's literally to say, this is what I did to get a job in professional sport. It was go and work in a gym for 18 months. It was go and work as a voluntary fitness coach at a semi-pro team two nights a week. It was go and work voluntary fitness coach for a ladies team 
one night a week. It was go and do uh, community coaching with a club with six and seven year olds. It was go and do summer camps in America for six months. It was it was all these coaching jobs. It wasn't working a bar uh, and go and be a eighteen thirties ref or you know it was. That's what you've got to look for. They're the people that really want a career in this industry, the ones that are willing to do those hard yards. Yeah, the ones that live it and breathe it day in, day out, that their Twitter feeds follow it, that they'll get up at 6 o'clock for those early sessions and that it's not just a, oh, I've done my undergrad now, it's time for me to become an SNC coach in a professional club. Because yeah. some people genuinely believe the process is. I think there's, there's plenty, mate. There's more that do than don't, I think. Yeah. But that's another thing. That's another story. Um, but we've been going. I've had another one, but I think, yeah, I think we're uh, we're going to wrap up. I think it's. Uh, I think that seems like a natural, natural step. So, do you want to talking about Twitter standard procedure? Do you just want to give us um, again? We'll start with uh, we'll start with Paul because you you started us off. Um, where people can find out what you've got going on, Twitter wise, uh, social media wise. P- yeah, P Bauer ten. Um, nothing much going on in mine, if I'm being honest. Retweets. I use it as a resource really to follow people. I'll, I'll make the odd comment, but generally it's just a just a retweet and a resource for me. But P Bauer ten. Luke. Uh, yeah. So mine's uh, at Luke Gator. So uh, Luke and then G A T U S. Um, it's a little bit different to. Um, Paul, I, I openly use it. I use it to share my ideas and my practice, and uh, I'm, I'm all for being critiqued and sharing my ideas. I think that helps me grow, and also I use it to throw grenades into the industry and just get what people's you know, opinions are of things. And I think a lot of people um, are quite um, aren't prepared to share their ideas, and, and I'm more than happy to throw out what I'm currently doing for people to to say, yeah, I either like that or I don't like that or I, could we do it this way or we could do it a different way uh, and just let's be sort of really open and honest as a group of coaches and try and educate one another because ultimately if we become better coaches or we get better ideas or we see something that we like, um, like I used that noughts and crosses game where people were sprinting that was just something that went pretty viral oh, yeah. and, and it worked really great. So let's let's share these ideas. The kids liked it. We got our outcomes from it and, and let's just be really transparent about what we're doing because let's face it, nothing that I do is revolutionary. It's not a product of mine. It's not what I do. It's just, it's just in my context and my part of the world. So let's look at everyone's different worlds because it's very easy just to get hung up in your in your own little bubble, in your own little world and the practice that you're doing. So, so yeah, that, that I put quite a lot of context out through Twitter and it's something that I, I'm a big advocate for. Mm-hmm. Kev, last but not least. Uh, yeah, I'll be, I'm the same as Paul. I, I don't really use Twitter much, but I can be reached at, at Kevin Paxton 10 K. Uh, I'll be honest. I'm, I'm not very good with technology. I, a month ago, couldn't even get Skype to work. So, uh, nice. Likewise. if, if Likewise, you want to reach out to me, <laughs> if you want to reach out to me I, I, one final thing I'd say is that don't be shy when you go to these conferences uh, uh, UKCA things like that just if I'm there and people spot us just come and grab all of us and chat and I, I've learned more in the breakout sessions and coffee sessions at, at conference events than I probably will from 
um, from social media. So uh, I think sometimes people are probably a bit scared to go and make friends, touch uh, base with people at these sort of national events and, and just there's no drama at all. Come and say hello, have a chat, swap ideas. Um, that's probably the best way to learn for me at times. Are you all going to the UKCA? No. Yes. Not booked on, but I'm planning on it. It will be my first since 2013, unfortunately. There's a last one I went to just with the, the working in football makes it a little bit harder to get there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm planning on hopefully going this year. Cool. So I'll be there and likewise, Kev just says, uh, cool. come and have a chat and we'll try and share ideas and let's all learn and, and sh- go from there. Nice. Absolutely. Well, thanks a lot for your time, Paul, Luke, and Kev, all of you. So, appreciate you uh, giving up your Thursday night for me. And I'll uh, speak to you all soon. Super. No worries. No, thank you. Thanks, Rob. Cheers, guys. Thanks for tuning in to the Pace Performance Podcast and number 98. Really enjoyed the chat with Kev, Paul, and Luke. The roundtable scenario is definitely something that I want to get done more. Just the logistics sometimes makes it quite difficult, but uh, I will try my best to get more of these because I really like the format and hope that you do too. Massive thanks to Train With Push and Val Performance for sponsoring the episode today. So don't forget, if you do want a push band, uh, you can get free delivery at proformance.pro and put Pacey Perform in the voucher code box. So thanks again for tuning in um, and hope to speak to you soon.